if we look at it from a global point of view, democracy is in retreat. The fraction of people living in democracies has gone markedly down. But I believe that democracy is the only way forward that will lead to broad, inclusive societal well-being. My view is that the failure of globalization, neoliberal globalization, created a fertile field for demagogues. That fertile field has now been tilled, and there are a host of demagogues, populists, and would-be authoritarians that have stepped in. Not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. That's Joseph Stiglitz, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Joseph Stiglitz on democracy and the failure of neoliberal globalization. Neoliberal economics has exposed the dark side of the American dream. It took off with Reagan and Thatcher. For most workers, incomes have stagnated, except for the very rich, whose incomes have more than quadrupled. Biden correctly points out that millions of people have gotten new jobs. But despite that, the typical family is actually getting paid less, taking inflation into account. According to data from the Federal Reserve, real median household income has been falling during the Biden presidency. Last year, the poverty rate more than doubled, and the number of people who are hungry jumped to 44 million. The ruling class, the owners of the economy and architects of policy, advance and protect their interests, no matter how grievous the effect on others. Can we imagine an equitable economic system? Our guest today is Joseph Stiglitz, university professor at Columbia. He's the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. He was senior vice president and chief economist of the World Bank. His efforts to move the bank in a more progressive direction got him fired. Author of many books, his latest is People, Power, and Profits. He spoke in Florence, Italy. And now, Joseph Stiglitz. The neoliberal order that we had for the past 40 years nominally was based on premises of a well-functioning neoclassical economy. I say nominally because if you look underneath the surface, it was more based on power relationships. But what we tell our students, it's all about the neoclassical model, and that goes back to Adam Smith talking about taking advantage of uh, economies of scale, the pin factory, the wider the market, the more those advantages. David Ricardo's talked about taking advantage of comparative advantage. Having free flow of factors meant factors go to where they are most productive, and that means GDP increases. All of this, as I say, leads to uh, higher outputs, and that could make everyone better off. But there were multiple flaws in this analysis. Much of my work over the last 50 years has been to try to identify those flaws and, and highlight them. It assumed away market imperfections, some of which are inherent, like imperfections in information and imperfect risk markets. You can say some imperfections are institutional. You might get rid of them, but you just can't 
solve the problem that there are always going to be imperfections of information. It ignored externalities with climate change, pandemic, public health issues. Externalities really are at the fore. It ignored technological change, and that's really remarkable. It was sort of an inconsistency, the rhetoric that was used for free markets. More broadly, once you introduce technological change, markets are not, in general, Pareto efficient. That's really important because a lot of people on the right don't refer to the first theorem of welfare economics. I never heard Barry Goldwater talk about the first welfare theorem. As They talked about the dynamic properties of markets. But once you do that, actually, analytic economics says it's wrong. The next point is a really important one that uh, many people uh, ignored. Much of policy ignored what is called second-best economics. With multiple market failures, eliminating or reducing one market failure may actually lower welfare. And I'll give an example. And then finally, while the analysis said by maximizing GDP, everyone could be made better off, that is to say you had a bigger pie, and if you sliced it correctly, everybody could get a bigger piece. In fact, anybody who looked at any political analysis would actually happen was that some people wound up with a smaller slice and they were worse off. So uh, that meant it was not, in fact, Pareto efficient. So there are a whole set of theorems explaining why neoliberal globalization might not work. I'm embarrassed about being so self-referential, but I, it, it, it's true. Uh, <laughs> the first is that uh, the competitive equilibrium are not, in general, even constrained Pareto efficient. Constrained means re- take into account the market imperfections, the cost, the uh, mar- imperfect information, the cost of getting information, the cost of creating markets, and so forth. In the presence of incomplete risk markets and imperfect and asymmetric information, as I say, markets are just not efficient. And so the first welfare theorem is limited to a world that doesn't exist. So the way I sometimes put it is, uh, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand that the pursuit of self-interest leads as if by an invisible hand to the well-being of everybody in society. The reason that the invisible hand often seems invisible, that is, it doesn't seem to be working, is because it's not there. And that uh, the markets don't have that kind of property that Smith assumed. And then David Newbery and I showed uh, in a paper that with imperfect risk markets, trade liberalization could make everyone in every country worse off. It wasn't only that there were distribution effects, it, was, it could make everybody worse off. And then I showed that with imperfect risk markets, I should be with imperfect risk markets, capital market liberalization may be welfare decreasing. That was really important because one of my battles in life was with the IMF in 1997, where the IMF tried to change its charter to articles of agreement to allow it to push countries to have capital market liberalization. When the IMF was founded in 1944 uh, with Keynes, Keynes did not believe in capital market liberalization. He was adamantly opposed to it. So an institution that he helped create 
turned, as often you create institutions, and then, you know, 20 years later, the people running them stab you in the back and go in the opposite direction. And that's what happened at the IMF. And at the point right after I, I became chief economist of the World Bank, that was on their agenda. There was a Hong Kong meeting where they were going to ratify this change to allow them to push capital market liberalization. Well, the events turned out not well because the East Asia crisis was just beginning. It began in Thailand in September. I met with all the finance ministers and tried to get them to put on tougher capital controls, undermining (laughs) the IMF. But before we could get all organized to do it, the Indonesian crisis and then the Korean crisis, and so we had a full-blown crisis. So the point is I opposed it in part because I thought there was no analytic foundations for it, that it was not welfare increasing. I finally, you know, gave the proof of it in a paper in 2008. And then finally, you know, bringing on uh, innovation, which is central to modern economies, with learning by doing, market equilibrium is essentially never efficient. So those were some of the theorems that help us understand why you should not have expected neoliberal globalization to have worked. But actually, in practice, things were worse. And they were worse because uh, these were theorems, and then you talk about what are the numbers, and the efficiency gains were smaller than predicted, and the distributive effects were larger. And large groups in our society became worse off with very strong political consequences. And this has to do with something else I didn't point, you know, some of the other assumptions. One of the assumptions of neoliberal economics, neoclassical economics, is costless mobility, uh, intersectoral across places. Some of the work of people like Asimoglu and the MIT group show that in those places where there were big trade shocks, wages went down, unemployment increased, property values went down, showing, in fact, that there were local effects. People did not move freely. Uh, In work with Bruce Greenwald, we had theoretically analyzed what happens then, And you can get, again, very bad outcomes from a macroeconomic point of view. Moreover, the trade agreements that were part of the neoliberal agenda, called free trade agreements, Europe, you often call them partnership agreements, but neither vocabulary describes what they were. A free trade agreement would be very short. Free trade means... I don't have any tariffs, you don't have any tariffs, I don't have any subsidies, you don't have any subsidies, and that's it. I would say, you know, a free trade agreement would be three pages. Free trade agreements are thousands of, a thousand, sometimes thousands of pages long. Why? They're managed trade agreements with all kinds of special provisions. No free trade agreement really included agriculture and special interest. That was the only area where you could have subsidies. If you looked at it, It was managed for the benefits of large corporations and powerful countries. The international institutions uh, reflected the same power dynamics. For instance, the intellectual property provision, 
which played a, a big role in the pandemic, reflected uh, the interest of big pharma. And I saw that very clearly because the uh, TRIPS provision reflected the U.S. view I saw firsthand was driven by big pharma and the entertainment industry. So copyright, we talk about it being really law was the Mickey Mouse bill because it was uh, tended to extend the property rights of Mickey Mouse. And the IMF reflected the interest of the larger creditor countries. I often refer to it as a credit collecting agency of the uh, rich countries. Well, there are a series of events that began in the early part of the century to undermine neoliberal globalization. Uh, The 2008 financial crisis showed that financial globalization integration meant that mismanaged financial markets in one country could lead to a global crisis. So it undermined the faith in free capital flows. The 2017, we found Trump showed that powerful countries could rip up the rules at will. Uh, He just said, I don't care about the WTO. And it was even worse than that. He refused to allow the appointment of judges at the uh, WTO. So it it, uh, basically shut down the appellate body at the WTO. And then Biden passed the IRA, the most massive subsidy ever. When it was passed, Europeans are uh, are beginning to complain about it, but I'll explain. People in the developing countries and emerging markets are really complaining about it even more, even though it had a good purpose. Its purpose was to advance investment in green. But it led to an unlevel playing field. The magnitude was originally, it was supposed to be a $270 billion subsidy, but it was a tax credit, so it was uncapped. And Brookings estimated a little while ago that it was over $1 trillion. But uh, when I was recently in Brazil, they were complaining that their estimates are $1.5 trillion. That's a lot of money, and a country like Brazil obviously can't compete. So these are some of the events. Probably more dramatic was what happened in the pandemic, because uh, in the pandemic, the global IPR rules made it impossible for countries in the South to get access to vaccines and therapeutics and tests. There was supply shortages. And there, were, there was a capacity, not great, but more capa- some capacity in the developing countries uh, for producing it. And there would have been more if there had been a tech transfer. South Africa and India, at the very beginning of the pandemic asked for a vaccine waiver. It wasn't a change in the legal framework because when the WTO was created, there was a provision for compulsory licenses, particularly relevant in pandemics, epidemics, let alone a pandemic. And even the U.S. had used that or had talked about using it in one instance. The problem was the compulsory licenses, the drug companies had figured out how to drag their feet. And in the case of the pandemic, it was very important to act quickly. You didn't want to wait five years of litigation to get your license. So that was the reason for the waiver. It wasn't, you still pay a royalty. So the drug companies get compensated, but at a 
fair market rate, not a monopoly rate. But the drug companies wanted to be compensated at a monopoly rate. And the disappointing thing was that the drug companies owned several of the European countries. Uh, Germany, I couldn't even get the SPD to change their policy. We got the Greens to change, but not the SPD. Of course, you didn't expect the FD to change. But, but we did get Biden to support the vaccine waiver. But without the support of Germany, UK, Switzerland, the vaccine waiver didn't occur. People died. People were hospitalized. Thousands and thousands unnecessarily because of this. And this has led a legacy of anger in the developing countries and emerging markets. There was another aspect of where globalization didn't work the way it should have. Um, There are rules about not exporting, hoarding, putting export restraints. Right now, Europe is complaining about some export restraints that Indonesia has imposed on the export of nickel because Indonesia is trying to increase, move up the value chain and not just be a primary uh, producer. It wants the end of the neocolonial relationship. And Europe says, no, you have to maintain your neocolonial relationship and export raw nickel. So uh, that's a, a current uh, debate. But in the pandemic, the United States refused the export of key ingredients for the vaccines. So uh, there was, and there was a lot of vaccine hoarding. So that led to what was called vaccine apartheid. There were other aspects of the imbalances that became very evident uh, in terms of the support for the economies. One of the big things is showing that government mattered, but also uh, the market economies showed remarkable lack of resilience. The supply chains were very fragile. I thought that all of that was predictable. It was related to the short-termism of market economies and the way that market economies don't appropriately value risk. We can talk about it more formally, what, what the market failure is, but it was a predictable market failure. There is the, the new geopolitics and geoeconomics. There's a new Cold War highlighted by uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, you know, just a blatant violation of international law. But even more important from the American point of view is the growing split with China. It's the only things that de- thing that Democrat and Republicans agree on is that China is bad. People may uh, differ about what the what thing about China they dislike, but that the, the view that, that this. We ought to be tough on China is almost universal, so universal that uh, I think people are afraid who don't really believe it even to speak up. Um, So there's a kind of conformity going on. Each side, Democrats and Republicans, are pushing uh, the other to take stronger uh, view, uh, stronger action. Uh, It's not clear what the reason for this is um, in the sense that At this point, China hasn't done a lot uh, to deserve uh, this kind of treatment. Um, Graham Allison uh, has written a book uh, about what's called the Thucydides Trap, the idea that the uh, number one country doesn't like to become number two. 
there's a lot of evidence of that being relevant. Uh, partly it has to do with China's support for uh, Russia in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, there's explicit Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. And uh, probably most relevant is um, China's uh, threat to take over Taiwan. One of the senior Chinese leaders uh, met with me and said our accord with Nixon was the peaceful reunification. And you in the West always talk about peaceful, and we always talk about reunification. And uh, a very clear hint that uh, there would be reunification, whether peaceful or not. The old vocabulary is uh, friend-shoring. Janet Yellen gave that in one of her speeches. But uh, she never defined friend. One of the... uh, uh, Latin American, large Latin American countries came up to me and said, uh, I, I said he went to uh, yell and said, are we a friend or not? And uh, she was a little, evidently a little surprised uh, at the question, uh, hadn't really defined who is a friend and not, and therefore who gets that benefit of friend showing. Um, Europe has a much better vocabulary, and I think a, a very relevant one. They talk about de-risking. So the hoarding of COVID-19 products show that borders did matter at a very critical time. But now, with the potential breakup of the global system, borders again matter. And if China were to invade, and you have to give some probability to that, were to invade Taiwan, that would entail major changes in patterns of trade. So if you know that's a serious risk, what action do you take today? Again, emphasizing the borders matter. Well, a couple of other uh, factors undermining neoliberal globalization I'll talk about very quickly. Um, The massive externality associated with uh, climate change. But the problem is that this is a major social cost which is not incorporated into market prices. So every country is engaged in subsidizing. And so anybody who says market prices reflect real costs have forgotten about a major first order subsidy that every government around the world is, and we don't have a good way of measuring the relative magnitude of the subsidy. So the whole basis that market economics is supposed to be a balance of having free markets reflect real costs, we now know with this massive externality, uh, they don't. So uh, that really uh, undermines the basis of free trade. But the action that Europe are now trying to take against the emerging markets, like saying... We won't import palm oil from deforested land are greatly resented and asymmetric. You know, a natural question is, well, a lot of your agriculture is on deforested land. You just deforested it a long time ago. So why should you prioritize old deforestation with new deforestation? It's just another way of of the West trying to uh, take advantage of the others. 
Well, there's still other drives, drivers of change of globalization, the changing structure of the economy towards services, and there are many distinct aspects of services. I want to move on quickly to the second point, part of the talk, where I address the question of global trade with learning by doing and climate change. The experiences that we have raise the question of whether there can really be an international rule of law in the presence of powerful countries, uh, an example I gave earlier uh, illustrates. But a rule of law is still really important for the less powerful countries. So you have the irony right now is that many of the advocates of the rule of law are, is not the United States, because it's breaking it, but smaller countries who want to be protected against big big countries beating them up, or other smaller countries uh, trying to engage. That's really the context. So in the next few minutes, I want to discuss a special case of trade systems in the presence of learning by doing. And uh, the big point I want to make is that the equilibrium outcomes are likely to differ markedly from output or welfare-maximizing outcome. And the hopeful note is that cooperation among medium-sized countries and competition from large powers, which we are seeing today, uh, for support of the other countries may enable the creation of a more balanced system than would otherwise be the case. So the basic idea is if you have learning by doing where the learning occurs based on your own production and I'll take the extreme case, you can't transmit the knowledge across borders, but you can transmit dollars across borders. What does it look like? Well, the obvious solution is you have the innovation occur in the places where innovation is easiest. You need to look for the comparative advantage in innovation. And then you transfer the dollars. But, of course, we don't have a system of easy transfers across borders. So that leads to a question of what would the equilibrium really look like. Before getting in there, I want to talk about a pie-in-the-sky idea. If you wanted to talk about just or fair trading system in this context, what, how would you think about it? How would you begin to think about it? And I, I like to uh, think about it in terms of... Rawls' theory of justice. And you ask, behind a veil of ignorance, where you don't know which country you were going to be born in, but you had to adopt a set of international rules that would, you would have to obey no matter where you were born, what set of rules would you want to have? We could describe that precisely, and it would be, again, where you would have efficient distribution of innovation but widespread redistribution of uh, the income that's generated by that optimal research and learning experience. Those are all you, know, you might call pie in the sky. And then I want to look at two other cases. One is uh, the decentralized solution with constrained power. And the constrained power, all I mean by that, is where the countries that sign the agreement obey them. 
not like the United States or Europe, uh, but where if you say sign on to the WTO, you actually obey the rules. The equilibrium, of course, will be the powerful countries will set international rules that maximize their expected welfare. Uh, investment in the innovation will not be optimally allocated. There'll be rules, IPR rules, that benefit the advanced countries at the expense of the less developed countries. And, in fact, inequalities will be perpetuated and magnified. But that's not as bad as the next two cases. One is where, a uh, case that we have, where instead of having uh, the powerful countries obey the rules, you have the powerful countries not obey the rules. And that's really uh, uh, the situation we have. And the equilibrium entails abuse of power and powerful countries set the international rules knowing that if the rules prove too inconvenient, they will break them. Though powerless countries obey the rules, powerful countries may not enforce the rules exposed if they are no longer in their own interest. And again, the rules even increase inequities even more. You're listening to Joseph Stiglitz on democracy and the failure of neoliberal globalization. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, just call us 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. So all of this is to try to say how difficult it is to get a just or even efficient system of rules in the current environment where we don't have a global government. In a way, policy is really uh, going to be constrained to recognize that we are in this second or third best world. And what do we do? How do we improve things? And that's where, you know, most of the political activity is today. The third part of the talk, I want to talk uh, about moving to a multipolar world with diffuse power, and particularly marked by strong polarization with this new Cold War. I should probably say uh, the divisions are markedly different than in the old Cold War, at least our perceptions are. It's not so much centering around ideology, though even then that was uh, partially a facade. We always talked about the West being favor of democracy, but we overthrew democracies that we didn't like in the case of Chile and Pinochet. So we were never committed to democracy. There was an embarrassing summit of democracies that Biden convened where there were some countries that were obviously not democracy. What do you do when Biden cozies up to Modi, who is engaged in destroying a free press, attacking a very large minority within his country, and actually attacking free universities like JNU? And now Canada is saying 
that he actually killed a Canadian citizen on Canadian territory. It's a a little bit important. Europe has made a very big deal of emphasizing we shouldn't talk about the fight against Russian invasion of Ukraine in terms of democracy. Because if Ukraine had not been a democracy, we would also have defended Ukraine. Maybe not so strongly, but we would have defended it because it was a violation of international law. I I think that is an important uh, point to keep in mind. But there is this new Cold War. It's opening up the potential for arch changes in the global economic architecture. In the presence of this real polarization, we're at a moment where we need real cooperation. Because if we don't address climate change together, we're all doomed. And there wasn't that sense during the Cold War, the old Cold War. So we're in this very peculiar situation where we we are very interlinked in the way we were not before economically. We are interdependent because we share the same planet and we have to solve that problem. But clearly there is this growing antipathy. The U.S. has proposed a notion of wall guardings, that there would be some areas where we would not allow free trade, but there would be other areas where we would. And uh, that's a peculiar and and not persuasively uh, persuasive idea. Let me talk a little bit about some of the reforms that are currently being discussed that highlight the dysfunction, I, I think, dysfunctionality of the current system and maybe hint to where we might go. Corporations uh, operate across the world, and there's a problem. Where does their income get generated? And therefore, where can their income be taxed? Many of you may know that uh, our uh, most powerful and our most innovative corporations are also most skilled at tax evasion, avoidance. Uh, And an example is Apple, where it claimed that all the profits that it earned in Europe were due to the economic activities of some 300-plus workers in Ireland who were working very hard to make billions and billions of dollars. You can imagine the productivity of each of those uh, workers that uh, they generated so many billions of dollars, each one. Uh, we, we, We were all so productive. Uh, and then a quirk, and it's not a quirk, but it was of the Irish tax law, has it that if you are a company that is effectively controlled outside your border, you don't pay taxes. So the subsidiary of Apple that was generating all these profits was not taxed in Ireland. So the total tax that they paid on their European profits was 0.2%. That's an example of tax avoidance, especially after 2008 and the concern about tax revenues. Uh, there was a, a, a global agenda to stop this. I had been involved in this issue since when I was on the Council of Economic Advisors because I felt the current system, which is called a transfer price system, where you make up prices 
to determine the value of what is produced in each country. So you have a shirt without sleeves, and you say, well, putting on the sleeves added this much value. So this system of called arms length transfer price, the best example of in clothing, when you ship apparel to Panama and they sew in that made in Panama label, all the value of the shirt is due to that made in Panama label because everybody wants a made in Panama shirt. And the value of all the rest was nil. And it just so happens that Panama has a very low tax rate. That's an example of how the old system, the transfer price system works. I had tried to change it without luck. It was one of my many failures uh, when I was on the, uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Treasury, reflect, U.S. Treasury, reflecting the interest of corporations, did not want to change after 2008 crisis and, and uh, a lot of agitation, the OECD set up, set up a, a process which was called BEPS, Base Erosion and Profit Shifting. And I think I've given you a flavor about how you do profit shifting so that you shift the profits to places that don't tax them. It's a major industry, and they have come up with a set of proposals that is now being discussed around the world. It has two pillars. The second pillar is a really important one, is a global minimum tax. And the U.S. has adopted not the form that they wanted, but a 15% minimum tax. Uh, That's too low. But the OECD initiative is 15%, then, but with a lot of carve-outs, so it's effectively like 12 13%. That's even lower so like half the rate of the corporate income tax in Latin America. It is an attempt to stop the race to the bottom, but it's clearly not a solution. The other part of it is what they call Pillar 1, and the question is it allocates taxing rights to different countries according to a formula, a particular approach. But the way it does it, not surprisingly, given that it was done, the way it was done, who, where it was done, and how it was done, allocated most of those taxing rights to the rich countries. So what was intended to be an initiative to increase the tax revenues of the developing countries and emerging markets and all countries has wound up being fairly ineffective. So that's an example of of something that has not worked. And right now, there is a big move to shift the negotiations from the OECD to the UN. The second thing I'll talk about very briefly is one aspect of the global financial system, uh, and that is that related to the looming debt crisis in many developing countries and a few emerging markets. When you have zero interest rates for a long time, there is a tendency to borrow because the cost of borrowing isn't very high. And so many companies and many countries got over-indebted. And then with the interest rates going up very quickly from near zero 
to 5%, many countries are not able to service the debt. Many countries wound up even more indebted than they wanted to because of the pandemic, which they hadn't planned on, and even more so because the Ukraine war led to an increase in the price of oil and food. So there are a lot of countries that are highly indebted and um, won't be able to repay. Now, the fact that debt might not be repaid is something that happens all the time. I hope it doesn't happen to any of you, but it, it is part of life in capitalism. Okay? You, you, you get over-indebted. And within our countries, we have ways of dealing with that, which is called bankruptcy laws. And bankruptcy laws decide who has first claim and who has second claim and how to take the limited resources and allow a fresh start, use the resources most efficiently, and have some fair way of dealing with the claimants. There is no international architecture for doing that. I help push a set of principles for doing that that was hoped to become a framework at the UN. And uh, the UN General Assembly adopted uh, the set of principles almost unanimously. I mean, it's really quite striking. Only six countries voted against. Unfortunately, they were um, the wrong countries. Uh, The United States, UK. So nothing happened. So here we are, eight years later, a crisis on our hands and no framework. And meanwhile, things have gotten even more complicated because the credit market has gotten uh, more complex with many creditors. Banks have been replaced, or in addition to banks are, are the hedge funds. And in addition to the usual bilateral lenders, China. Things are, quite frankly, a mess. And the hope that the IMF had, which I thought was never going to work and has not worked, is the putting in provisions in the contracts called things like collective action clauses would resolve the problem. And uh, it improves things, but it's not enough. Making things even more problematic, the IMF is supposed to be acting counter-cyclically, stabilize the global economy. But the rules that it's adopted are de facto pro-cyclical. Just when countries need the money, it's jacked up the interest rate. So borrowing from the IMF has become very expensive and insufficient given the the disproportionate growth of private liquidity. And then there are uh, a provision that is not well known called surcharges are added on. If you are really in bad shape, they charge you even more, even though there have been almost no defaults. If there is a default, it will be because the IMF charged their surcharges. So they are creating their own problem. The result of this is that the total interest rate for some is now 8%, which is not really a low interest loan. But the high interest rates are also a problem for countries turning to the multilateral development banks 
for financing green transition because investments for the green transition that are profitable at low interest rates become unprofitable at the high interest rates. And it's very clear there's not enough capital within the multilateral development banks. So let me just conclude. There is a new balance of economic and political power emerging, which is markedly different from that of 1944 or even 1990. I think the advanced countries are are loath to take on board the full implication. It's partly that there's been a really big shift in, I, I might say, ideology, the belief that markets would solve everything. It wasn't a full belief, as I said before, because we never acted on it, but it shaped policy, even if it was not adhered to. That belief is gone. I mean, there's still, you know, we still have the Republican Party, but they don't really even believe it themselves. They voted for the CHIPS Act, and they have supported all kinds of corporatism in the country. So the underlying market ideology isn't there. There isn't anything to replace it. So we are in a world basically where, where power is, is a defining part of what is going on. That has contributed to one of the factors, contributing to the, uh, the challenge to our democracy if we look at it from a global point of view, democracy is in retreat. The fraction of people living in democracies has gone markedly down. But I believe that democracy is the only way forward that will lead to broad, inclusive societal well-being. My view is that the failure of globalization, neoliberal globalization, created, uh, or at least was an important factor in creating what I describe as a fertile field for demagogues. That fertile field has now been tilled, and there are a host of demagogues, populists, and would-be authoritarians that have stepped in, not just in the United States, but in many countries around the world. When I look at globalization in the post-war era, it was shaped a lot by the United States. And it's commitment to a borderless world, even if it was sort of not a selfless, you know, it may have been, even if it was partly based on bad economics, and even if it was a move towards a world with fewer borders, uh, where borders mattered less, how will the new globalization look? There are obvious questions posed by the fact that not only is the United States not taking leadership in globalization, one of the two parties in the United States is antithetical to any global, has really gone back to isolationist uh, roots. That raises the question of which other countries, what other countries, are there other countries that can step into the breach if the United States can't do it? Can Europe do it? I find it very interesting. I began my talk saying it's really in the interest of smaller countries. And I, by small, I don't mean necessarily small in population, but in terms of economy. They have an interest in having a rule of law. I describe Brazil and Indonesia as two of the large democracies remaining. I'm not sure India is a democracy. It used to describe itself as the largest democracy in the world, but Modi has, has demoted it.
uh, Brazil and Indonesia that I describe as the two largest functioning democracies in the emerging markets. Can they step into the breach in shaping the agenda, norms, and institutions in the new global economic order? Or we will, will we continue to see dysfunctionality? What is so clear is, given the importance of climate change, we have to somehow find enough space for cooperation that we don't wind up totally polarized. But the reality will be that we will be somewhat polarized. The U.S. view has been basically... We can fight you in one arena and cooperate in another. It's not clear that that hypothesis is true, or if it is true, there may be limits on the way you fight in one arena that you need to impose if you're going to get cooperation in another. That let me stop. Okay. I would like to uh, ask you a question about the very nature of this emerging new world order, because uh, you, you mentioned two uh, features at the same time, and I would like to ask some clarifications, because in one sentence you said that it is emerging multipolar uh, world order. At the same time, you also said we are uh, witnessing an emerging new Cold War that was actually bipolar. So I was wondering about the, basically the number of the, uh, of the key players uh, you think they are. And related to that, I'm really curious about your opinion about the role of Europe or the European Union in this new emerging world order. Thank you very much. It's very clear is that the countries, you know, countries like Brazil and Indonesia, uh, what used to be called the third world, don't want to take sides. It's partly... There is some antipathy to the West as a result of the pandemic and lots of other, you know, the colonial history. It's partly that they are very dependent on China. Uh, yet many of them are democracies that feel more affinity to align with democratic countries. So they're being very explicit in, in a context where you see that is many of them have abstained in the votes of the U.N. On, in condemning Russian aggression. And you, know, you sort of wonder why uh, this is, you know, there aren't many cases of black and white, and this seems to be one. And small countries have a very big interest, you would have thought, in making sure that the international rule of law, that one country doesn't invade another, because... If a big country invaded them, they have no ability to resist. So it's very clear that they should be supporting this, and the question is why not? One of the reasons is that they are trying to stay outside of these two. You know, the conflict is between basically right now U.S. and China. The size of these emerging markets is very different from what it was in 1944, the BRICS, which is not, which includes uh, China and Russia, but the BRICS has a larger GDP than than either than the advanced countries, so they're really large in GDP now. So they really do represent an other source of power if they were aggregated and if they worked together, and they are now trying to do that in a variety of ways. The BRICS extension was an example of that to say we are not going to be dictated to by the advanced countries. So it is multipolar. 
It's a bipolar conflict. It's a cold war, but multipolar sources. Now, Europe is the, where does it fit in this? Well, it's clear that in the current configuration, Europe is really aligned with U.S., basically through NATO, but Europe doesn't have its own independent defense force. Therefore, it knows that it's totally dependent on the United States, were that Russia to become more aggressive. In my sense is, you know, most Europeans would like to be aligned with the United States. But the United States is a very unreliable ally. If we elected Trump, would you want to be a partner? Uh, I'm not sure you would. So I've been telling Europe that it really is important for it to, um, you know, I'm, I'm against uh, military spending, but I think in this world, it's what you have to do. And so I think there needs to be a European defense force. And I think Europe needs to be a more independent voice, a separate independent voice. And the reason I, you know, as I say, the reason I think that, because uh, I think human rights and democracy are really important, I think for the most part, with the exception of one or two countries, including yours, uh, Europe is committed to uh, democracy. And uh, America, democracy is fragile. And so anybody believing in risk diversification says we ought to have really more independent sources of support for democracy and human rights. You were just listening to Joseph Stiglitz on democracy and the failure of neoliberal globalization. He spoke in Florence, Italy in late September 2023. Joseph Stiglitz, university professor at Columbia, is the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature such voices as Norman Finkelstein, Vandana Shiva, Phyllis Bennis, Medea Benjamin, and Chris Hedges. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Joseph Stiglitz on Democracy and the Failure of Neoliberal Globalization, and the Noam Chomsky book, Notes on Resistance, just call us. 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us, 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening.
Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. You've been listening to CGSW's airing of Alternative Radio. For a full listing of episodes, head to the podcast tab on cgsw.com or search up Alternative Radio on the CGSW app. Imagine coming back home from a frustrating mental health day. Moody, gloomy, angry, searching for a release. Now imagine a canvas set up on an easel. Paints in your hand, feelings in your heart, and soon enough, beautiful art on the page. Why is it that even in that hypothetical imagination of the catharsis of art, we feel comforted? Well, countless studies have focused on the effects of art on our mental health. The arts offer evidence-based solutions for promoting mental health. The cathartic release of creative processes and the sensory experience that art has on the brain is highly effective in mental health capacity building and in reducing anxiety. So how can we use this information in a productive way? Well, one way is to represent things that you want to let go of as words, drawings, colors, or images on a blank canvas. Then you can burn it, rip it up, cover it up with something that inspires you, throw it away, put it in water, or destroy it in any way you please. Another way is to respond to situations with art. If someone has hurt you, consider writing a letter to them or painting to them as a way of addressing your hurt. You don't even really need a gift to them. It's always helpful to find art that you connect with. This can be bands, music, art. This explains a lot of obsession with emo music when you're depressed as well. Another creative process would be to collage or to scrapbook. The freedom to organize and mix and match or patch up abstract feelings in the comforting arrangements of paper and magazine clippings is incredibly helpful. There are lots of ways to allow yourself to feel through art. So if you're looking for a new way to express your emotions... Thanks for listening to CJSW Originals. To listen back to this podcast episode and many more created by CJSW members, go to cjsw.com and click on the podcast tab or go to the CJSW app and talk filter when you search. Gluten-free, vegan, handcrafted, organic. Everything you need in the radio. It's CJSW 90.9 FM.